0: show. I'm Melinda. We are so fortunate today to have Robert Epstein with us. He's a family lawyer like me. Welcome, Robert.
1: Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be here.
0: I'm so glad you're here. So this was a legislative year, right? Yes, it was. And how often does that happen?
1: Every two years. So in odd numbered years, like 2023, we have a legislative update with new statutes in our family code.
0: So part of our job as lawyers, we have to keep up with the law changes, right? That's exactly right. (laughs) And we're going to talk today about what change that affects family law. So one area where they were focused was on protecting people. Yes. Definitely good to protect people. And one area was in protective orders. And there's two types of protective orders. There are criminal protective orders that the police get, but there's protective orders also available under the family code. Yes, that's correct. So how did that change? What's the difference now?
1: So the biggest difference is that in the past when the burden was to prove that family violence has occurred and is likely to occur in the future, you now no longer have to prove it's likely to occur in the future. All you have to prove to get a protective order to protect you or your child is that family violence has occurred. That's all you have to show. And so that's a significant change because essentially it took away the burden to prove two prongs or two elements uh, to to be able to qualify for a protective order.
0: Protective order is a big deal,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. It means that you can't own a gun. It means that you have to stay a certain minimum distance away from the protected person or face criminal repercussions, among other things.
0: And it's not just – it doesn't just affect the perpetrator that stay away from this person. That could be – handled with an injunction, it's it's a bigger deal than that, right? And yes. it could affect their job status. It might affect their ability to get a job in the future. So not to be taken lightly, right? It's a no. big deal.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And difference between a protective order and an injunction, if somebody does come within 500 feet, and the injunction says that and the protective order says that, what's the enforcement difference?
1: Sure. So with respect to a protective order, Uh, The the uh, the person who is violating the protective order can be arrested for violating the protective order. Uh, The person who is violating the injunction can be held in contempt of court, but not until there's notice and hearing. So that requires an actual evidentiary hearing before a judge in order to be punished. Whereas with a protective order, you don't have that requirement for enforcement. You can you can go to jail if you
0: violate it. They step on the lawn, police can come take them. That's correct. Okay, so you mentioned the difference now is that we no longer have to show violence is likely to occur in the future. Correct. That was difficult to show in some cases. Like, how do we talk about what's going to happen in the future?
1: It was, and, and it was actually the best defense when you, when you actually represented somebody who was accused of committing family violence. You know, that this person is not likely to commit family violence in the future because they're doing A, B, and C, getting counseling, going to recovery, whatever it may be.
0: Just the fact that they weren't living together anymore.
1: Right, right. For sure. Really
0: lessened the chance of fi- family violence occurring in the future. They don't have physical access every day to this person anymore.
1: That's correct. And especially if it was just like a, a, an isolated incident, mm-hmm. you know, like a, like a one-off. You know, it was harder to prove that family violence was likely to occur in the future mm-hmm. if it was, for example, a long marriage and this incident of family violence was was, you know, once in say twenty years. Uh, that was the best defense for for the alleged perpetrator, mm-hmm. and now that's no longer available.
0: So now I think, and see if you agree, that the focus and the fights going to shift to the definition of family violence. That's correct. So, what is the definition of family violence?
1: So, family violence is an act that intends to place a person in uh, fear of their bodily safety or that actually uh, results in bodily harm uh, to that person. It it could actually be a threat that reasonably, reasonably places that person in fear of his or her bodily safety.
0: So, it doesn't have to be you put them in the hospital. That's correct. It could just be threatening, I'm going to kill you.
1: That is 100% correct.
0: So that's a big difference, right? Putting somebody in the hospital is very different than I'm going to kill you said in haste. I'm not saying people should say, I'm, right. I'm going to kill you. Right. But I think most people could see a difference in that.
1: Oh, a- absolutely. And and uh, there's no uh, you know difference in the family code among the types of family violence. There's no different levels of degrees of family violence. It's all under the same definition. So if if you have one incident of making a threat that reasonably places a person in fear of their bodily safety, that by by definition is family violence that could uh, result in a protective order against somebody for two years.
0: And it says the judge shall. That's correct. Give a protective order. If they find that happened. They're
1: entitled to one. That's correct.
0: So it's a big deal. People need to be aware that they cannot run around just, saying whatever they want to say.
1: Right. And, and, you know, people can sometimes say things in jests. People can sometimes, you know, not intend for something to actually place someone in fear of, of their bodily safety, which is very subjective. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everybody needs to be very careful and, and, sh- and should be careful anyway, but, but especially now.
0: And texting, there's so much communication by text now. Younger generations they text everything.
1: Yeah, it's easier to prove. And, I mean, you can easily record somebody on a smartphone nowadays. So, you know, it's uh, it's a lot easier to prove what somebody said uh, than, it, than it once was.
0: And it's legal in Texas to tape record a conversation if you're a party to it.
1: That's correct. You just have to be a party to it. Right? So if
0: you're in the house with your significant other and they're losing their mind telling you... What's what, and you're fearful. You could tape that,
1: right? Right. If you're in a marital dispute, an argument, absolutely. And as long as you're, you know, there, present, participating in the conversation, you're, you're the, you're the unilateral consent that is required to record the conversation. You just have to have one party's consent. The other party doesn't have to know, and, and you can be that party. who
0: consents. And that's good evidence. I mean, sometimes it's such a he said, she said, right? Yes. And most of most violence happens in the privacy of people's homes.
1: Uh, right. that's Nobody else correct. is there. That's 100% correct.
0: So, you know, you hate to tell your client, hey, record it next time, because you hate that they have to wait till next time. Right. But record it next time well, is not bad advice. Uh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> and the reality of the situation is that our courts, as you know, Melinda, are are reactive instead of proactive. I mean, most of the time anyway, that, you know, nothing's going to happen unless something has happened. Right. And so, so, yes, I mean, you need to make sure that, um, you know, you're you're doing what you have to do to protect yourself mm-hmm. and, and to show the court uh, why you need what you're requesting.
0: Of course, best advice is get out. <laughs> if, if you're right. to the point that you have to record your spouse, right. get out. Right.
1: If you're legitimately afraid of your bodily safety, uh, yeah. you, you should probably leave the house. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And that's one test. Like if somebody calls me and they say, oh, I'm afraid, and I say, get out, and they're like, I'm not getting out you know. <laughs> How afraid are you? Right.
1: That's a good litmus test.
0: (laughs) But we do have the cycle of violence, of domestic violence, where sometimes people are not, like what I just said sounds so logical. But when somebody is in the cycle of domestic violence, they're not always logical.
1: No, no. uh, That's very true. And um, it's it's very unfortunate to see. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other factors that can be considered as well, Mm -hmm. like financial support. Um, Often times, yeah. victims of abuse don't have uh, control over their assets mm-hmm. uh, or income, and so they don't have the financial means to be able mm-hmm. to actually get out. Uh, it's easy for you know, it's easy for us sitting here to say that, um, but the reality of the situation much be, might be much different for that person. Yeah,
0: so they need resources. Absolutely. One of the changes um, in this legislative session is. Somebody in the government, <laughs> some organization has to make a pamphlet now that the police can hand out, that uh, medical providers can hand out, that tells people resources that they can find when they are victims of domestic violence. And there are studies that show if somebody is handed something on a piece of paper, they're more likely to get help.
1: I believe it. Yeah. Access so to information.
0: We have to you know, try to break the cycle. 100%. Okay, so another area that's kind of a protection area is the possibility now of having a standing order, and you can explain what that is, or in the protective order, language about tracking and following. Right, Tell us about that.
1: Sure, so now uh, you can get an uh, injunction or a restraining order uh, without an affidavit, without requiring proof uh, that prohibits somebody from following you, or having somebody hired to follow you, uh, or that prohibits somebody from tracking your vehicle, even if that vehicle is titled in your spouse's name, they can be prohibited from tracking, placing an air tag in that vehicle, which which is actually lawful if they're on the title to the car. But now there is a statute that says that essentially upon request, without an affidavit, anyone can get a restraining order that prohibits uh, the, other, the other spouse from doing these things, and and that's a huge development in the law because in family law we've had private investigators, you know, that that do surveillance, uh, and and now uh, that might not be uh, the resource that it once was.
0: I tell you, when I heard that change, what I immediately said is, "Are we in America?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, how can you not be allowed to have a private investigator? Follow someone. This is like freedom of movement. Aren't, don't we have a right to develop our case? What if they're doing really bad stuff? Right,
1: right, yeah. What if they're
0: endangering the child? How am I going to prove it now if I can't have somebody follow? Right,
1: them? right. That, I mean, there there are significant repercussions as a, as a result of this new statute, without question.
0: So it's not automatic. They have to ask for it or. We don't know if one of our counties will put it into the standing order. What Correct. is a standing order? So a
1: standing order is, is is like a temporary restraining order, like a temporary injunction that prohibits uh, parties in a, a child custody suit or in a divorce from doing certain things. And when you file a suit, for example, in Dallas County where we are now, there is a Dallas County standing order that applies to any child custody suit or divorce in Dallas County. And it's a list of things that are prohibited that the parties are prohibited from doing and it automatically applies to the person who files the suit. And then to the person who has served with this res- with the suit after they receive notice of it that these things are uh, orders of the court that say what you can not do and what you can do.
0: So the judges are going to have to decide if they add that
1: correct. And and many of the things that are in the family code that you can automatically get without an affidavit such as now prohibiting tracking somebody or following somebody are already part of the standing order. So it's to be determined whether Dallas County and some of the surrounding counties that have standing orders are going to be following that and adding that to their standing order.
0: You know, I for some reason, my reaction to the tracking, I kind of get that. That's back to the protective piece. Sure. That's not a professional. 100%. A, that's an individual putting a tracker on your car. And to go follow his wife or her husband and make a scene at the boyfriend or girlfriend's apartment and beat him up, you know, right? Like I see that, right? Don't put a tracking. I'm I'm with him on that. I agree. But a PI is not a danger. No,
1: it's a li- it's a licensed professional. Right. You know.
0: So to me, that's a world apart, and that's the opposite, which is we're trying to protect children, right? Maybe they're taking the child into a dangerous situation around a dangerous person around someone they've been court ordered not to have around that child. Sure. Sure. How do we prove that now?
1: Well, you hope that this injunction is not part of your case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult to prove, um, you know, child, uh, statements oftentimes are considered hearsay and, and, um, you know, not allowed as evidence in a child custody Mm -hmm. proceeding. There are exceptions to that, of course. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the implications of this.
0: Okay. So you led us with your talk about children's interviews. That leads us into the child custody evaluation statute. So there was a couple of changes to that. Yes. And tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So uh, a couple of things with the child custody evaluation is now there's a requirement that the interviews with the child or children in a child custody evaluation must be recorded by audio visual recording. Uh, that is significant because in the past children interviews by child custody evaluators were not recorded or at least it wasn't required to be recorded. And I think it was best practice, probably for most evaluators to not actually record the child interviews, uh, because they were concerned about a parent getting a copy of their file, which would include a copy of the of the recording. And, and the reason why that's significant is because you don't want the child, uh, you know, to be essentially the victim of one record of of one parent saying, Hey, I heard you on this recording, Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. browbeating them over it. So, you know, now that option, uh, unfortunately, for those types of parents, is out there, uh, with with the requirement that the child custody uh, evaluator record these interviews with the children.
0: And it's going to be video and audio.
1: Correct. Uh, it so, says audio visual, so I, I would just you have to assume that that means you know a, a video right. and audio. Uh, right. They'll
0: be wearing like a body cam, or they'll have to be in a room where they have the camera. Right. I think. Um, I see the reason for it in the sense of lawyers should have a right to know what the proof is. Sure. Right? It's kind of like before this evaluator didn't even have to tell us exactly what they said. So as a lawyer, how do I fight against mystery proof? Sure. So in that regard, I see why as part of the case, the lawyers would want that. But you wonder if a teenager who knows they're being recorded is really going to be frank and earnest with a custody evaluator.
1: Yeah, that's another very important consideration that you bring up.
0: It's obvious it's not private.
1: Right, (laughs) right. I I, I think that that's that's a very good point.
0: And, you know, some judges can interview kids, too, right? It's a separate issue, and it's not part of this custody evaluation. But a lot of them don't want to have anyone in there or a court reporter. They can and for the same reason, they absolutely. want the child to tell them the truth.
1: Right. Abso- absolutely.
0: absolutely. So so you wonder if it might help in some ways. It would certainly protect against some rogue custody evaluator. It would. It would. But it might hurt getting to the truth.
1: Yeah. I mean, it may be well-intended, but I think in practice it's, it's going to have uh... – more negative consequences than, uh, than potential benefits.
0: I think the whole, we've had over really several years now, the child custody evaluation statute has gotten meatier and meatier. Yes. More and more rules about who can do it, how do they do it, which, again, has some good points. Is It's not just somebody making stuff up. Right. But it's made them take longer, and it's made them more expensive.
1: No doubt about it. Yeah.
0: So you wonder if this is just another piece that's gonna make people say, Forget it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then and then it becomes harder to find good people to actually do these evaluations. Oh yeah.
0: You know. Then you just say, just put your evidence onto the judge, forget the child right. custody evaluation. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, and, and and the other thing, um, you know, with the child custody evaluation and this new legislative update is that the legislature has made it clear that we can now hire a rebuttal expert. Uh, to challenge the child custody evaluators recommendations Uh, in the past in some cases these experts were um, disqualified or or i guess removed excluded from testifying because they did not actually do a child custody evaluation and the family code makes clear that in order to give opinions recommendations on conservatorship possession and access you have to actually meet the elements of a child custody evaluation You have to do a child custody evaluation. So these rebuttal experts uh, who were hired by one side who wasn't pleased with the child custody evaluation to challenge it uh, in some cases had been excluded from testifying and now the family court uh, or the family code makes clear that under the new legislative update, uh, you can hire a rebuttal expert uh, who can challenge the qualifications of the evaluator or the methodologies of the evaluator uh, as long as they don't give an opinion on conservatorship, possession, and access, they're able to testify, which means that uh, the ability to uh, essentially provide some checks and balances on the child mm-hmm. custody evaluation has has become a little bit better as a result of, of this legislative update. Yeah,
0: I like that. I mean, I think that's good for the trier effect, whether it's a judge or a jury, to have somebody else say, look, they didn't do X, Y, Z or – hey, what about your qualification? Are you really qualified? Sure, sure. <laughs> and I guess as lawyers, you could make argument about that before or cross-examine the person, but this is another professional who, you know, in theory, has the same type of qualification or better, who can say, ooh, maybe they should have done X, Y, Z.
1: Right, right, yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, basically peer, peer review. Yes,
0: right? yes. So I think that's I, I like that change.
1: Yes, me too.
0: So it's a little bit easier now to adopt your stepchild.
1: Yes, that is correct. For step parent adoptions, they don't require the uh, the social study or the evaluation uh, for the adoption placement anymore, which is which is a good change. Uh, and I think that will hopefully encourage step parent adoption uh, in cases where you have a healthy marriage uh, between a biological parent. And a step parent, and, you know, the other biological parent either might be deceased or maybe his or her rights were terminated. Uh, so I do think that is a, a good change.
0: Yeah, I think it was one of those things that it just got lumped in there with regular adoptions where you really do need that evaluation. But hey, people are having to pay money for something that was silly. Right. Like if I don't adopt them, they're still going to be in this environment. Right. So what's right. the point of it? Right, right. It's not the same as a newborn adoption where we're looking is this a good placement. Right. Yeah, you
1: it's know? already the reality. They're already Right, li- it is living their placement. The so what's the point? Right. right.
0: And wouldn't we rather have the step parent have legal obligations to that child?
1: Absolutely we would. Yeah, no, them, that was that was a good change. That make them pay idea. some
0: child support later. <laughs> no, I'm not wishing divorce on those people. I'm but that is,
1: that is the reality of the implications of that. That's true. Right. Duty, a, a duty to support.
0: Yeah. And then it doesn't fall on the state. Right. You know? Right. So that's good for all of us. Yes. Okay. So we're going to go into a more complicated area yes. now. <laughs> There's something called reimbursement. And maybe before we get into reimbursement, you can explain how does law develop? And there's two different ways, and then that will kind of tie us right into why are are we talking about reimbursement.
1: Sure. So the legislature in Austin, of course, makes the statutes, makes the laws, the Mm -hmm. family law that we we as family lawyers use that govern our divorce and child custody suits. Um, The appellate courts uh, interpret that law and uh, sometimes they interpret the law in ways that the legislature likes and sometimes they interpret the laws in ways that the legislature doesn't like and so when you have uh appellate courts that uh render opinions uh that the legislature likes those opinions may become codified become statutes in the actual texas family code and then they become the law of Texas and a lot easier to uh, implement uh, in our in our families.
0: And what's confusing just to show why our job is difficult is we have more than one line of appellate courts, right? We have different districts, it's regional, and they do not have to agree.
1: No, they, they don't. So for example, the Court of Appeals in Dallas might have a different interpretation of a statute than the Court of Appeals in El Paso. And what the El Paso court decided, in one appellate case, doesn't have to be followed by, by, by a Dallas court. Uh, of course, the Texas Supreme Court needs to be followed throughout all of Texas. Any decisions made by the Texas Supreme Court need to be followed throughout all of Texas. But a lot of family law appeals don't make it all the way up there. So you have different appellate decisions in different regions of Texas. And when there is a problem like that, sometimes it's uh, it's handled through the legislature to resolve that appellate split, and have it codified in the Texas Family Code in a way that applies to the entire state, the way the legislature actually wants it to apply.
0: So we just had a big codification in reimbursement in the area of property, division, confirmation, and divorce cases.
1: Yes, we we did, In, in the reimbursement statute
0: so explain what all that means
1: (laughs) sure so texas is is a community property state and so that means that uh property that is acquired uh obtained during the marriage is going to be presumed to be community property that would be divided upon divorce okay uh the texas constitution and the texas family code they they do provide for separate property in Texas to be protected if you can prove by clear and convincing evidence that property you owned before marriage, property that you received by a gift or inheritance, those things are separate property not to be divided in a divorce. And so the reimbursement statute in the Family Code deals with reimbursing one estate, meaning the community estate, by a spouse's separate estate or vice versa or Technically, one spouse's separate estate could owe a reimbursement claim to the other spouse's separate estate. So think of it as just shifting money around between the different types of estate estates depending upon the property that we're talking about. And so, for example, the best example to, to use here would be a house. Okay, So say uh, a couple gets married and one of the spouses already owns a home and they decide to make that home their marital residence. Well, the home was owned before marriage, say, by the wife, and it's it's therefore the wife's separate property. But during the marriage, uh, there is a reduction in the mortgage principle that is paid by the community because both spouses' income during marriage would be community property so the money that is being contributed by both spouses during the marriage to pay down the principal debt of wife who owned the house before marriage would create a reimbursement claim from wife's separate estate to the community estate because the community conferred a benefit to wife's separate estate that the community does not receive a a benefit from itself because it's not the community's debt and I know that's hyper-technical, <laughs> but that's the best example that I can give. Okay,
0: I'll say it back to you. So it's her house. She owned it before marriage. So the court cannot give that house to him. The court cannot make her sell that house. It's her separate property house. Correct. But they lived in that house for seven years. And husband took his little paycheck every month and helped pay down that mortgage. Correct. So he's saying, wait a minute. I don't get anything out of that house. That isn't fair. I spent seven years paying on that house. So this is the make it fair statute. Right.
1: That's exactly right. That's what this is all about. It is all about a fairness, um, equitable remedy uh, for for the estate uh, that didn't receive a benefit uh, during the marriage.
0: And this isn't a shall. This is a may.
1: That's correct. It's discretionary.
0: So the judge has the right to make it fair.
1: But doesn't have to. But doesn't have to. <laughs> right. That's true.
0: <laughs> and what I like about that, even though it's frustrating if you're trying, you know, you'd always like a shall if you're getting the dollar. But what I like about it is some of these circumstances are complicated. And there could be a lot of different fairnesses to be considered, not just that one fact pattern. There could be other things that happened in that marriage financially that the court could consider and weigh in deciding if they're going to recognize this claim or not.
1: Absolutely. And, and to that point, Melinda, there's, uh, this notion of offsets to reimbursement. So let's talk about that for a second, because if the husband paid down, helped pay down the wife's debt on the mortgage, uh, the wife could then say, but there's also an offset argument to be made in that, uh, We were maybe able to uh, get more of a tax benefit by claiming the mortgage interest as a deduction, the real estate taxes that we paid. um, You know, uh, you got to live there, right? (laughs) Real estate taxes are kind of tricky because you know the community could argue that you know wife's separate estate should have had to pay those, but then there's also the the the, um, the property tax deduction. So uh, what's what's interesting about the, the new reimbursement statute is that they did codify some of the offsets of which would be income received. Uh, so if you had a rental property, for example, uh, the rental income received from from a separate property rental uh, could be used as an offset or the reduction in the amount of any income tax obligation based upon a deduction that you can claim. So just kind of a little interesting uh, addition to the statute there.
0: This is where um Family law can get really complicated because what you said at the beginning of that conversation was if you owned it prior to marriage, it's separate, or if during the marriage you received it by inheritance or gift. But in many cases, the income off of your separate property is community. Correct. Correct. So, and it's really almost item by item what the rule is about that. Right. Right is the increase in value community or not, or is it just the interest paid, or is it the rental income, or is it the, you cut the tree off the land, or did the cow have a baby?
1: Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it depends on the type of assets uh, to determine you know, whether the income is, is characterized as separate or community.
0: So this is one reason people need to hire lawyers. Yes. <laughs> if they have any property and any complexity, it's not simple all the time people come to me and say so it's 50 50 right
1: (laughs) nope just Uh and right division (laughs) whatever that means
0: (laughs) and this is an illustration of why it's a just and right division is there can be some of this complexity to sort it out absolutely so people do need a little bit of assistance to sort all of that out
1: yes they they do and Absolutely. Legal counsel is crucial because uh, I've seen too many times when people try to uh, do the divorce themselves and then they have problems later down the road. Uh, Certain property wasn't divided as part of that divorce or um, they have problems enforcing the property division. So if you get it right the first time, you're likely to have less problems down the road.
0: Yes. I have one right now where... In the mediation, we went to mediation, got a binding agreement, but one of the things we said in there didn't really make sense. We thought it did at the time, (laughs) but it's not doable. (laughs) So sometimes we can all have a great idea. Hey, let's put a lien on that property to secure this. And then we find out that property's owned by a partnership or that partners that property's owned by an LLC, you can't attach it effectively in the way we wanted to. So you have to not only sometimes have a family lawyer involved but sometimes we have to hire experts in those fields a real estate lawyer or somebody who understands division of uh qualified plans to help us one figure out what is allowed what can we agree to what can we ask a judge to do and then to make it so
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh you shouldn't hesitate to reach out to uh not just family lawyers, but, uh, you know, accountants, CPAs, um, you know, uh, appraisers, wh- whatever whatever it may be for the particular issue, uh, just to make sure that you're doing it the right way because that's, you know, crucial.
0: Well, and I like that you said CPAs because there's a big tax effect on some things that people need to consider when they're considering, you know, what do I want out of this deal is think about, Are you taking an asset that hasn't been taxed yet
1: right right absolutely because i mean you 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 could be dealing with uh uh, a significant tax liability especially if uh if the basis is 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 pretty small uh meaning that you didn't really pay much uh for the property to begin with Mm -hmm. Uh, when you later sell that property you could you could realize a substantial capital gain uh and so yeah it's important to make sure that you have a team of professionals to help you Uh, make the good decisions for your your benefit while you're going through this process.
0: Okay, so now to our next change to talk about in the law. And this affects lawyers more than the general public. Yes, it does. But we had a change in how we exchange information, which we call discovery. Yes. Tell us about that change.
1: So uh, prior to this legislative update, we had what we called required initial disclosures where we uh, had to reveal or disclose certain information or documentation uh, within 30 days of somebody filing an answer. So divorce petition is filed, uh, somebody files an answer in response to the divorce petition, 30 days from that date, both parties are to exchange required initial disclosures and it was mandatory. And if you didn't do it and you later had a hearing or a trial, the uh, documents that you did not identify in your disclosures or did not produce in your disclosures would be excluded from being used as evidence. So it was uh, oftentimes a trap um, and especially it affected people who were not, uh, we were just talking about this, who were not represented by counsel uh, pro se parties because they, they didn't know what the law was on this. And so now in order to get that information and documentation, uh, one party actually has to serve the request for disclosure which provides notice now to the other party that he or she has to turn over certain information and documentation within 30 days of receiving that request.
0: So this initial disclosure that it hadn't been around very long that law.
1: No, maybe maybe 2 years. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so it didn't work. So sometimes the legislative session they meet, they pass something, then they get so much feedback in the next session 2 years later that hey, we don't like that. We need to change it, that they will. So in this instance, they did a very special rule. Like initial disclosure still applies in other areas of law. It does. But for us, it went away because it didn't really fit the family law model very well.
1: Right, right. And I I think it just became kind of a gotcha trap uh, Mm -hmm. that people were taking advantage of. And so now there's actually this notice requirement that, okay – you know, now I know somebody's requesting this information and I have to turn it over within 30 days. And if I don't turn it over, then, okay, it makes sense that my evidence would be excluded because it was requested and it wasn't turned over.
0: I like, what I like about repealing or taking away this initial disclosure requirement is it allows us to really look at each case and see what do we need. Yeah. And sometimes we, I mean, a huge amount of the time in my cases we just give each other what we need. We don't have to do a formal request anyway, but the initial disclosures required you to give certain things, whether you needed to really swap that information or not.
1: Right. Yeah. It, it was. Uh, it, it was pretty uh, time intensive. And yes. So I think that this is going to allow uh, people going through a divorce to save money, uh, which is which is always great. So I yes. think that this is this is the effect of, of that. Uh, legislative change is so that we don't we don't have to do this now. Yes. Uh, so I think it, I think it was a good change overall.
0: In 30 days, within 30 days, you almost had to have the entire theory of your case. You, the lawyer, had to have already gathered everything that they might want to argue or use, and we weren't used to having that all done no. in 30 days. No. So I, I feel like by the time they repealed it, I'd kind of gotten used to it. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. But. Uh, I still agree that we're better off without it.
1: And and I will say, I mean, it was helpful in those cases where, you know, you represented somebody who might not have known much or anything about the assets. You didn't even have to request this information. The other side was required to produce it. So that was helpful. But now like if you, if you need to know something, all you have to do is request it and they have to turn it over.
0: I feel like uh, it did. Like I can think of specific cases where I was really effective in a temporary hearing just shutting the other side down Because they hadn't provided it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it kind of lawyering, you know, the case, it was kind of fun, but it wasn't fun if it was the other way. Right. (laughs) If if I hadn't provided something and then later in the case figured out, oh, I want to use this. You know, then you were asking for leave to give something late, and it just increased the expense of everything. It did,
1: yeah. It was a lot more paper pushing.
0: Yes, sure. and if you look at it from a purely justice to be served, I mean, I do not think it's just for a pro se litigant to be able to put on no evidence at trial because they didn't know about this. No, that's not
1: right. They're not lawyers. They they don't know, uh, and maybe they can't afford an attorney. And and so yeah, that that was a trap that I think uh, pro se parties um especially to your point you know Mm -hmm. we're we're taking advantage of
0: and we have in our area of law more pro se's than probably most other areas we
1: do i mean divorce and child custody affects all
0: walks of life Mm -hmm. so it it was having a too heavy-handed of a of approach when the legislator meets, do they just sit around and say what laws should we change? <laughs> How does that work?
1: Well, there. I mean, there's there are, there are committees and and there are lobbyists and uh, you know lobbyists uh, of course they, they lobby or try to uh, persuade for the legislature to do something, make certain changes in the law. Uh, there's the Texas Family Law Foundation, which is which is uh, uh, comprised of Texas uh, family lawyers and professionals uh, who. You know, give their two cents about certain things they see working in the practice and certain things they don't see working mm-hmm. in the practice. And and the, the legislature, um, you know, listens to, to them and also listens to others uh, out there who, you know, family law is affecting.
0: Yeah. So it's usually driven by something bad happened from someone's perspective or something better could happen. And so people bring bills to the legislature and say, hey, I want to change the law in this way. And. Then they have people come testify and talk about why this is important change. And then they have other people come say, no, it wouldn't be good for it to work that way. So it's an interesting process. And the people, the legislators, they're not family lawyers. Right. So they have to rely on, you know, hearing from family lawyers on our perspective, but also the community and people who, you know, think maybe they weren't treated fairly or entities like, There's organizations out there that are trying to protect people. So on the protective order stuff, you know, they have a a good lens of, hey, we need something more robust. So because probably what happened on the protective order side, what we talked about at the beginning is someone had some horrible thing happen to them but could not prove it was likely to happen in the future. Right. And that felt unjust. Right. right. And, And I can see. that would
1: absolutely and then as a state legislator somebody who is elected by the people um you know you probably don't want to be that legislator who says you know i i actually think that it should be harder to protect people
0: right
1: so politically that's that's how this probably got through
0: yes yes so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the long run yes it will Thank you so much Thank for you, being Melinda. here. This was this. fun to talk about. Yes,
1: it was great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
0: We're going to put on the screen how to reach you. And great. I highly recommend Robert. He is excellent lawyer. You can tell just by listening today, he knows what he's talking about. So don't hesitate to reach out to Robert. He's representing people in the whole DFW area, true? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so his information will be on the screen. Now for the tip for the day. Our conversation today about law changes made me realize you really need somebody who knows what's going on. So if you're considering a divorce or a modification of your prior order, I highly recommend hiring somebody who knows what's going on. You need a lawyer who spends most of their time doing family law, not someone who does a little bit of family law on the side. They're not gonna spend the type of time typically uh, digging into what did the legislature just do if, the, if it isn't a big part of their practice. So a good question to ask when you're interviewing is, what percentage of your practice is family law? And it's always good, whether you're hiring a lawyer or a doctor or anything, to maybe get a few opinions. And ask each person, hey, who are three other people in your field that you think are excellent? That's just a good, easy way to find out who out there is good.